As we turn to the scripture, as I said, Romans 8, we'll be looking at verses 28 through 30 tonight. Um, very famous passage. And so as we come to this passage, I want to ask you a question. What if you could know truly and with certainty that your future is secure? What if you could know that? I remember when I was your age, this point of life between about 21 and 25 is a giant question mark. You don't know what's coming around the corner. You don't know if this career is going to work out for you. You don't know if this degree is going to work out. You don't even know if you're going to pass this next test. But what if you could know that your future, when it's all over, is secure and that you can know that truly and with certainty that it is secure. This passage tonight is going to say that believers in Jesus Christ have that knowledge. That we have that hope that our future is truly and certainly secure in Christ. And not only is it secure, but it's good. It's the best that we can imagine for ourselves, that our lives work together for good and for God's glory. And those things are the same thing. Last week, we looked at the, the groaning that all creation experiences as we live in this world with fallenness and sinfulness and broken bodies. And we groan for the redemption of our bodies when all things are made new and that all things are reconciled in peace to God. This week, we're going to really continue on that same trek in that same trajectory. And we will see that no matter what we face as believers, we know that all things work together for our good and that our future glorification is secure because of God's unstoppable purposes. So that's the main point tonight that we'll look at in the text together. So with that said, let's stand together and honor the reading of God's word. We'll read verses 28 through 30 of Romans chapter 8. God's word says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And as we come to it tonight, we pray that the truths that it contains would uh, comfort our hearts, that would conform us into the image of Christ, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. We ask you to do this work by your spirit for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So this passage, these couple verses here in Romans chapter 8 are one of the richest theological sort of nuggets in the entire Bible. It's filled with massive theological implications. And for that reason, it is not uncontroversial. It's one of those passages that are debated. What are these words? Particularly the trigger words of predestined and uh, foreknowledge. These ideas that, some, that God would predestined people. What does that mean? How do we understand that? It's in the Bible. So maybe that's a new slash to you right off the start tonight that we got this passage and you go, whoa, the word predestined is actually in the Bible. I remember when I made that discovery <laughs> that that word was actually there. And so 
Um, as we address this passage tonight, I, I'm not primarily really going to look at it in terms of addressing it in the context of controversy. I'm just going to address it as it's written, straight on the page, as it's written, as it is in the flow of Romans 8. And I hope that you see um, the, the beauty that is there, the power that is there in this passage. This passage has been called the golden chain of redemption. The golden chain of redemption. And in this golden chain, we see five links, five links in this chain. There's one of being foreknown, predestined, called, justified and glorified. And so we're going to walk through each of those five links tonight. But first, before we do that, we'll see in verse 28 that this golden chain is forged in the sovereign purpose of God. This golden chain is forged in the sovereign purpose of God. So what is God's purpose for those who are His? Verse 28 says, good. God's purpose for those who are His is their good and His glory. And those two things are the same thing. So we can only be assured then that all things work together for good if we know that all things work together according to God's purpose. So the sovereignty of God, God's control over all things, has to be a foundation for any hope that we can have in our future good. You tracking with me? So what I'm getting at here is if God isn't in control of all things and bringing all things to His determined end, how can we have any certainty that our end is going to be good. I would argue that you can't. But if God is sovereign over all things and is working all things to his determined end, then we can say that since we are loved by him, then we know our end is good. And that is the ground of our hope. That is the ground of knowing that our future is secure. And so what I'll do is I've got about five passages of Scripture here to, to demonstrate to you that God is sovereign over all things. When I say sovereign, I'm, I'm using that word and not defining it. What I mean by sovereign is sovereign means to rule as a king with all authority to enact your will, your decree over that sphere of authority. And we know that God is sovereign over all things, that he is the king and issues his royal decree and it comes to pass according to his purposes and by His power. That's what I mean by sovereignty. Now, is that just a philosophical construct that was, that was invented? Um, I was told on campus one time that that was an Augustinian heresy which was invented by St. Augustine. Um, but I think these passages will show you that that's not the case. Look, Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's about a perfect definition of sovereignty that I can think of. All things under his authority are being worked to the counsel according to the, the purposes and the wisdom of his will. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 the Lord says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, 
My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46 is a great place to, to read in concerning the sovereignty of God because what God is doing in these chapters of Isaiah is he's comparing himself to the idols of the world. These idols are, are, are dead. They have no life. They can't speak. They can't act. They can't do. But God says, but I am truly God. There's no one like me. What makes me different than the idols, God says? The fact that I accomplish my purpose. That that I declare the end from the beginning. Notice he says, I declare, not I just see the end from the beginning. Because there's a point in my life where I would have said, God knows the end from the beginning because he's all knowing. But the passage goes further than that. Not just that he knows the end from the beginning, but he declares it. He declares it. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So Isaiah says there's no purpose of God. There's no desire of God that has been decreed by God that will not be accomplished. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. Speaking of the Lord, it says, He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand. So here we see him working his will on, in heaven and on earth and no one is able to stay his hand. No one's able to stop him. So this is getting at his power. Not only does God decree from the end, the end from the beginning, but he also has the power to bring it about and no one can stop him. His purposes will not be thwarted. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. I like this one because the, uh, but what Solomon's doing here in this proverb is he's thinking of the most random thing he can think of. You know, what's more random than, than rolling the dice? Right? It's just straight probability, right? You roll the dice, but Solomon says, no, the lot, the dice is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the Lord knows what you're going to roll. And He doesn't just know it. He determined it. He determined it. So if you never get Yahtzee, <laughs> God didn't want you to have a Yahtzee. That's powerful. When you take something as random as rolling the dice and know that its outcome is determined by the Lord. If that is true, what else is random and it seems random in your life and pointless in your life that is determined by the Lord? That makes you think about everything. That makes you think about this morning when my alarm clock didn't get, go off and I was almost late to church. <laughs> it was my negligence, but it's also God reminding me that, hey, get, get your priorities in order. Right? Every outcome is determined by the Lord. Psalm 115.3. This is just straight up. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. If you, you can memorize that one. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. Again, this psalm is comparing God to the idols of the world. Where, the, the wicked say, where's their God? He's not doing anything. And it's like, oh no. Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. And so this is just a sampling. This is just scraping the very, very, very top 
of all that there is in Scripture that makes it plain to us that God is totally in control over all things that take place. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass, as the confessions say. Okay? Maybe you're tracking with me. Maybe you say, okay, yeah, God's all-powerful. He has a decree. He's accomplishing His purposes. But why should I be encouraged by that? That means there's... That means I'm just like a robot living in this world. I have, there's no meaning in my purposes. and There's no meaning in my actions. There's no meaning in my life because God's just moving me around like a puppet on a string. That's not the picture that we see in Scripture. Always in Scripture, the sovereignty of God is good news to those who love Him. And good news to those who are loved by Him. And, and this can be good news because he's also good. See, God isn't just sovereign. He's not just all-powerful, but he's also good. So if you had a God who was just completely good, but not sovereign and all-powerful, then his good feelings toward you, I mean, you might be, you appreciate that, but it doesn't really help you out any because he can't do anything for you. He's just sitting up in heaven you know, feeling warm and fuzzy thoughts about you. But if your God is just powerful, just sovereign, then you have no reason to trust him. And then he's just playing you like the puppet on a string. But the picture we see in scripture of our God is that he's both of those things, that he is good and he is sovereign. So that we know his power is leveraged for us and for our good. You see? That's why we can say we know that all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You see how that works? So if you deny the sovereign decree of God in which he works all things according to the counsel of his will, if you deny that, I wouldn't challenge you to think about the implications of that in terms of what reason do you have to hope that all things work together for good? Sure ain't karma. Right? It's not karma. If, if, if karma was legit, then we'd be in big trouble. Friends, you don't, you don't want karma. Karma is a wicked goddess. You don't want karma. You want grace. You want the Lord Jesus Christ, who doesn't give you what you deserve, but gives you grace, gives you mercy. Gives you goodness. He makes goodness and mercy follow you all the days of his life. How many times have you guys listened to Psalm 23 and, and never realized that God makes you lay down in green pastures? He doesn't say, hey, I really, really love you. Come as you are and lay down in the green pastures. They're really nice. We got coffee. No, he's a shepherd. And he leads you and makes you lie down in green pastures beside still waters. And he restores your soul. He sees to it. He leverages his sovereignty and his power for your good, even when you were at enmity with him and you didn't want it. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. 
His sovereignty and His power is leveraged for the good of those whom He knows. And that's why Paul can say in verse 28, and we know, we know, not we think, or we have good reason or good probability to suggest. Studies have shown, no, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, because he knows those who take refuge in him. So that leads us into this really first link in the chain. That God's sovereign will brings about the good of those whom he knows. Verse 29 begins this golden chain. It says, For those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This word foreknew, or foreknown, or for, to foreknow, what is that? It's the word uh, prognosco. Prognosco. So if any of you studied or have been to a doctor or heard anything about the, a prognosis, right? Prognosis is, what is a prognosis? It's saying that this is how things should develop in the future. It's foreknowing. It's, it's knowing what is to happen beforehand. So a prognosis says that this disease typically progresses this certain way in the future. And we can know that based on what we have seen take place before. Well, God's knowledge is different than that. God's foreknowledge, his prognosis, if you will, is not based simply on what he has learned through repetition. But it's based on his decree. It's based on what he has determined to take place. It's based on the counsel of his will. And so the question is, in this verse, verse 29, what is known beforehand? So what is foreknown? So look closely at this. For those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreknew. So what we see in this passage is that God foreknows people, not actions. God foreknows people in this passage, not actions. Now, I said, I guess I lied a little bit in the intro about how I wasn't going to address this primarily in terms of the controversy around this passage. And, but we can't skip over this. One of the more common interpretations of this passage is that what God foreknows here is the free will decisions of people who would choose to accept Jesus as Lord and, and to confess him as Lord and believe in him, all these things that God looks down the corridors of time and foreknows that, that Clint would say a sinner's prayer and ask Jesus into his heart. So he foreknew that. But is that, is that what Paul's saying here? What is foreknown here? Is it actions or is it people? In this passage, it's people. Those whom he foreknew. In fact, when foreknowledge is used in this sort of context in Scripture, in terms of salvation, it's almost, if not ever, used in reference to actions. It's always in reference to people, to the church. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 says, speaking of God, it says, Even as He, God, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So Ephesians is saying, he chose us, he chose believers in Christ. When? Before the foundation of the world. From the beginning. I declare the end from the beginning. You remember that? He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And then what? In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He moved towards us in love. His foreknowledge is connected to His love, which I think Elijah hit on this a few weeks ago when he preached about this word, uh, gnosko, in, in the Greek, um, often having the connotation of intimate knowledge of someone, that you know someone the way that a husband knows his wife. There's this intimacy there. And so God doesn't just know that you exist, but he foreknows you in an intimate way. He has a loving affection for those who are his, for those whom he has called according to his purpose, or as Ephesians would say, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what it's all about, that we would praise him for his grace because this foreknowledge is not based on anything in us, but it's completely based on his grace. So we get a glimpse into sort of the inner workings of God the Father, Son, and Spirit in John chapter 17. If you've never read John chapter 17, I encourage you to do that. Because in that, prayer, in that chapter, we see the prayer of Jesus to the Father shortly before he's crucified. And you kind of get to see behind the scenes a little bit of this inner Trinitarian love. Jesus says things like, glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before the world began. And saying that, in verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So when we talk about this foreknowledge and predestining unto salvation, we see in this passage, we have to understand it in the context of love. That God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and he gave us to Jesus, according to John 17, as like a bride, right? As a, he gave us to Jesus because God loved the Father. So God gave us, the church, to Jesus as a love gift. And we share in that love of Father and Son eternally. You see that? That's just really cool. I hope you see that salvation, that being a Christian, is more than getting out on hell, not having to go to hell. It's more than social club or status but it's being caught up in this eternal love of the Father for His Son. That we share in that. 
that we're, as it were, just lifted up into heaven and sat right down in the middle of a giant hug of the Father for His Son. So when we talk about predestination and election, foreknowledge and all these things, it's in that context. God set His love on us before the foundation of the world. So that's foreknowledge. The next link in the chain is predestination. He, those whom he, what does it say? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. This word predestined is pro-orizo. Pro-orizo. So that's fancy, right? It's Greek. You know what it means? To predestine. <laughs> or to foreordain, if you want to find a synonym. So the question is, what is the destiny that has been foreordained for those whom he foreknew? So he foreknew us, he set his love on us before the, the foundation of the world. And then from that love, he predestined us to a certain end, to a certain destiny, right? What is that? Verse 29 says it's conformity into the image of Jesus. That's the goal. God loves you so much that he wants you to be like Jesus. And because we're sinful, we don't understand that. We sound like that's all. But if we really knew the Lord, if we really knew Jesus, we'd be like, wow, what a gift. What a, what a destiny to be like Jesus to be conformed into the image of his son. That's the destiny. Rooted in an eternal love with an eternal application at the end. Then it says that he was predestined to the image of his son in order that, for the purpose that, what? <clears throat> he, would, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Who's the he? Jesus. In order that Jesus might be the firstborn of many brothers. What does that mean? What does that mean? I knew this was in my notes somewhere. Earlier I was like, I knew I was going to get there. <laughs> this is what that means. We're brought into that family of God. We, we share that love of father to son. It's not just Jesus experiencing the love of the father anymore, but we are also a brother. We are brought in, share in that love of father and son. That was the purpose. Why does God give us this destiny? Because he wants this love that he has for his son to be shared by others. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So if you belong to Christ, this is your certain future. This is that future that you can certainly and truly know. Conformity to the image of Christ, experiencing the love of Father for His Son. So, verses 28 and 29 sort of give us eternal bookends. Okay? It, it shows us this eternity uh, past of the foreknowledge of God and the predestined eternal future of conformity to the image of Christ forever with Him. Now, verse 30 shows us how that, those eternal purposes on both ends 
get applied in space and time to your life? Okay, how does the decree of God and his purpose for you meet you in the actual space of history in which you live? That's what the next verse is about. Verse 30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Now, before we go any further, notice that every verbal phrase in this passage is linked together with the words, he also. Okay, I would encourage you, if you're writing your Bible, to underline every he also, he also, he also. And what you see when you do that is that no one falls out of this chain. If, if a group of people were foreknown in the beginning, those whom he foreknew, he, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that original group of foreknown people make it all the way through this chain, from foreknowledge to predestination to glorification. Very important. So you can't say that there are someone who might be elect or called by God who aren't justified or who aren't eventually glorified. No one falls out of this chain. And so when we look at this calling, I think this calling here in this passage is what theologians would call the effectual calling. The effectual calling. Because when we think about this and we say, all right, there's really two types of call in Scripture. Or in, uh, in Scripture is where there's a general call, outward call, where you go and you preach the gospel to every living creature, right? You tell everyone about Jesus and you, you command them to repent and believe the gospel, right? But then there's this other call that's an inward call that is a call of the Spirit by which he brings life and he really applies the work of that outward call to those who are his. This is the definition from the Baptist Catechism. It says, Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills. He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. So this call is a call of the Holy Spirit of God in which he comes and he does this through that outward call. Like he, he might be doing that to you tonight. As you're hearing the word preached and you're called to faith in God's word and faith in repentance, <clears throat> that general call that goes out. But I have no ability and no power to actually bring about obedience to that call. But the Spirit of God does. Why? Because no purpose of his shall be thwarted. No purpose of his shall be thwarted. <clears throat> so this isn't the general outward call of the gospel to every person. But this is a special inward call of the Spirit. Uh, Paul refers to this call in 2 Timothy verse one, or chapter 1, verse 9. He says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began. This call that we experience as believers in Jesus Christ as a result of his grace 
is connected to his purpose before the ages began. You see, the call, in other words, this call, this special call of the Spirit, creates the response. The call creates the response. There was an example of that. It's the example uh, I first heard John Piper use this illustration. And if you're laying there asleep, your bud, you know, your friend's asleep on the couch and you want to wake them up, your purpose for them is that they be awake and you call out to them, wake up! What do they do? They wake up. They don't have a little bit of moment while they're in their sleep going, hmm, should I exercise my free will and respond to his call? Is he... Is there enough evidence to believe his claim that I should wake up? <laughs> um, or did I just, am I even asleep? No. You wake up. Why? Because the call contained what was necessary to bring about the response. Right? And so in the same way, this effectual call is when the Spirit comes to us in our spiritual sleep and says, wake up. But it's even better than that. Because he doesn't just call us out of sleep, but he calls us out of death. He calls us from when we were dead. So we are more like Lazarus in the grave. Because Ephesians says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Jesus walks to Lazarus, this grave where he's dead and been dead a few days, and says, come out. Come out. And what did he do? He came out. Because this effectual call is likened to that. Now, Lazarus eventually died another natural death. What do you think about that? It's like, man... That's brutal. But I guess it's worth it to be raised by Jesus. And, but, but we don't have that fear as believers spiritually. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. I'll read this just so you know I'm not making this up. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see that? So he calls us, not when we were asleep, but when we were dead. And his call creates the response that he calls for. Because those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And the next link says, and those whom he called, he justified. Now, if you've been tracking with us in Romans, how are we justified? Through faith, right? Through belief in the gospel, belief in Jesus Christ. And so what the golden chain shows us is that God brings that to pass in those whom he knows and he loves. That if he calls you out of the grave, he calls you to faith and makes you willing and able. Not just able, but able and willing. So he says, and those whom he call, he also justifies. So what is justification? Again, from the catechism, it says, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Who justifies? God. We're justified through faith. And this is all from God. Did you know that faith itself is a gift from God? Ephesians chapter 2. As you can see tonight, you should probably read Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, people say, well, no, no, no. Faith is not the gift. Salvation is the gift. No, no, no. The whole package is the gift. Why? Because it's not by works, so that no one may boast. So that you could never say, well, I believed in God. I had faith. And that other person didn't. No. That was a gift of God, so that you could, boast, could not boast. So those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those who believe in Jesus have had the penalty of sin and death removed. And then one day, we'll be freed from its presence as well. And that moves to the last link, glorification. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We talked a bit about glorification last week. But so what is glorification? This is receiving that resurrected and glorified body. This body that is raised up from the dead without any corrupting presence or consequence of sin. Um, that is glorified and beautified, that is like Jesus', like Jesus body and like Him. So we will be refined, not just morally, but also physically. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. You see how this is just everywhere? It's like, I, I love this about the Bible. It's like when you start seeing this truth, it's just everywhere. Everywhere you look. I did not pick this verse in Philippians because it talked about God subjecting all things to himself. I chose this verse because I knew it talked about transforming our bodies. But then as I got to it and read it, and I was like, by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. Again, this sovereignty of God, his ability to work all things according to his purpose is what gives us hope that we will have a glorious body. That not even death can thwart his purposes. You see? So it's everywhere. And it's beautiful and glorious. Now, there's, there's one bit of this. Now, glorification. <clears throat> so if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you, if you believe the gospel, you're a Christian, you know that you have been foreknown. You've been predestined, you've been called, and you've been justified. But you've not yet been glorified. Right? So why does Paul say in this passage, those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified? Past tense. Why doesn't he say he will, he will also glorify? You have two options here. One is that he's referring to people who have already died, which I don't think that's what it is. I think what it is, is we can be so sure of God's purposes and his decree that we can speak of it as if it has already happened. That he speaks of this glorification, this future hope in the past tense because God has decreed it and his decree is sure. So I want you to think about that. So when we gather for dinner each week, and I read the same passage of scripture every single week 
Because why? It sets our mind on this future reality that this is but a foretaste of. Right? It says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. That sounds great. How do we know that's going to happen? For the Lord has spoken. That's how we know. That's how we know that He will wipe away every tear from your face and, and every reproach where you just know that everyone's looking at you because they know what you did. He's going to take it all away. And how can you be sure of that? Because He has spoken. He has declared the end from the beginning. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. So we can rejoice now on this side of our glorification in reality of our future glorification because we know it is certain. So we can, in other words, we can rejoice and we can party and celebrate and get a little bit rowdy when we sing the Psalms as if our tears have been wiped away. As if our pain is gone because the Lord has spoken. And it will be. And what we do is both a fulfillment and a foretaste of that. Because when you know that He will swallow up death forever and you're mourning, there's a little seed of glory that allows you to mourn as one with hope and not with one as one without hope. So in a way, He is wiping those tears, even now. And so allow that to say, this is our God. We have waited and we keep waiting on Him, but we know that He has spoken. And so for that, we are glad and we rejoice in His salvation. See, this stuff, this theology, this, let's call it Calvinism, mm -hmm, boogeyman. This is not just things you debate on theology groups on Facebook. This is not stuff that just gets you kicked out of Baptist churches. <laughs> no, this is a matter of hope and a matter of living your life with purpose. Why? Because you know God has preloaded purpose into your life, right? I'm just not navigating through life mindlessly and pointlessly. But before the foundations of the world, God numbered my days and he's made goodness and mercy to follow me, every single one of them. Because he has the power to do so and because he is good. And this is all because of his completely free and unmerited grace. He didn't look down the quarter of time and say, hey, he's going to be a pretty good person. I think I'm going to foreknow him and predestine him and bring him the glory. No. In spite of our filth, in spite of every way that we have rebelled against him and tried to go our own way and, and just stubbornly kick against the goads and, and push the opposite direction. There is 
a half a decade at least of my life in which I tried to push against the purposes of God. I tried to go a different direction than he had decreed. Tried to plow a different path than he had laid out to those green pastures. I thought the green pastures were somewhere else. And I wasn't even looking for the, the pasture I actually settled down in. But God's purposes will not be thwarted. He got my attention. He got my attention. And he revealed to me that he's way bigger, way more powerful, and way more beautiful than I could ever imagine. And it was this very issue, honestly, uh, of the sovereignty of God that completely changed the tra trajectory of my life. I remember when Kaylin and I were working through this doctrine of election and predestination. And they got past the point where I was like, this is not true. This is not God. The Bible does not teach this. Then I moved into the phase of, well, I at least see where they're getting it. Still wrong. Then I go, uh-oh, maybe they're right. <laughs> and then I go, if this is right, it changes everything. I remember vividly walking our little dog in the parking lot of the Lynx apartment complex at night and saying to Kaylin, if this is true, it changes everything. And it, it has changed everything. Because no longer am I fearful of God's purposes. No longer do I feel like I'm missing out if I follow the Lord. Then I'm going to sacrifice these things. Yeah, He calls us to sacrifice and to die to ourselves, but what He calls us to is better. Right? So this is all of His grace. And then I remember the next year was just like, why me? Why me? And I still don't know the answer to that question. Actually, I know the answer to that question because, because he wanted to. Because he wanted to show me his grace. So this is not just theology just to make you feel smart, make you feel better than other people. Actually, if you study this and end up thinking you're better than other people, then you're the dumbest person in the world. <laughs> Because you spent all this time studying this theology that should produce the exact opposite of that, of that in your life. Because this theology said there is absolutely nothing you did for God to choose you and to save you. Literally zero. Not even 1% of flexing your free will. And so if you think you're better than people because you believe this doctrine, you don't actually believe this doctrine. So at, as we close, notice who is doing all the work in this chain of redemption. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified, which means there is no work from you that needs to be done. Actually, if you try to get involved, you're just going to mess it up. He simply calls you to come and receive his grace. This is why we started with Come, ye souls, by sin afflicted. Look to Jesus. Mercy flows from him alone. Right? You come burdened and buried with the law. Burdened with your ability to do what you even know is right. And your failure to live up to even your own standards. How much less God's standards. And yet he says, come, take my yoke upon you. It's easy. Gentle. 
follow me and I will lead you to green pastures. And we know that he will not fail in bringing about that goal and that end. So believe this good news tonight and, and be saved. If you have not been justified, if you have not believed in Jesus Christ and you, there's this calling in your heart and your spirit that you know that there's truth to what is being said here. Believe in Jesus. Simply come to him. Don't try to, try to get yourself right. I was talking to someone this week who was talking about how they, needed to, they, they knew that they needed to get their life together before they could be baptized. It's like, no. No, absolutely not. You never will. <laughs> so come. Take his yoke. Believe this good news and be saved. If you have been justified and you're struggling with this doctrine, maybe there's some implications of this from people you love who aren't Christians, aren't believers. Maybe there's some difficulties with this um, that we don't have time to address tonight, but I would love to sit down and talk through that with you um, and wrestle through that. Um, I understand if you don't come from a background that teaches this doctrine or teaches the opposite of it, really. Um, this difficult. Been there. Been there. Um, so I'd love to, to walk through that with you. We get coffee or whatever. Uh, so hit me up on that. And then the final thing. This is the whole vision of Coram Deo. It's even in the name. So we live all of our life before the face of God. Is that we would see this theological vision of literally everything. That as the, as the, the, um, the dice is rolled into the lap, every decision comes from the Lord. So is your life. So that you live every life, everything in your life, and you receive all things as coming to you according to God's good purpose. Everything. Even the, the heavy and bitter and hard providences. Receive them as coming to you according to God's good purpose and then live Coram Deo in light of that. So, this is God's word to us tonight. Will you believe it? Will you believe that God has worked your life for good and for his glory and every little thing? I hope you will. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. As we come tonight, we pray that you give us hope, uh, that you give us a certainty in your purposes. God, I pray that this word would produce confidence, that it would produce more than anything, worship. And God, I pray uh, that you would receive glory in the lives of everyone here, that our lives would be lived for you, that it would truly change everything for them, and that in everything that they pursue, that they are pursuing you and your purposes in that. We know that this is your purpose and your will, and that you will bring it about and so, God, we're asking that you do it now in our lives and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.